This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. So if you'd like to turn there, it's page uh, 810, the Bible's provided in the seats. If you don't own a Bible, please receive it as a gift and um, read it. Paul is, uh, last Sunday, last Sunday, the purpose of the message was to observe God's heart for mission out of Psalm 96, God's desire for the world to know his love and goodness. That was last Sunday. This Sunday is focused on our role, our role in mission, and uh, we're going to get there. We're going to walk through the gospel in order to get there, but uh, we'll get there. But I want to start with, I want to get a principle out and give you an example of uh, a principle uh, that's true in, in the word and in, in the Christian life. When I was learning to fly uh, in pilot training, when I went to pilot training, well, in my flying career, I have reflected back that there were uh, many occasions where I made mistakes. That was, that's, goes without saying though I will deny them typically. (laughs) But there were more than a few occasions where had had someone else not intervened, uh, I wouldn't be here today. Like really big mistakes. Like last night I was cataloging them. I had a list. Just for time, I've had to line out some examples where... I was, I was doing everything I could to do the right thing. Everything in me. I mean, if I, to the degree that I have control of my faculties, 100% of who I was was trying to do the right, right thing. I wasn't trying to horse around. I wasn't having fun. I was trying to do the right thing, and I failed. And someone had to come in and, and pick me up. The uh, you know when you're learning to fly that that whole period doesn't count because you, I mean you're gonna you always need an instructor or you'll kill yourself right I mean but what I'm talking about so I'm not even thinking about that I'm not even thinking about the point where I was nursing uh, but when I was on, starting to get on my own that's what I'm thinking about in pilot training my first cross country trip which is an important part of the learning to fly take off and go somewhere else it's a big deal and fly at night and flight plans and going to different. Um, I, I went with a buddy, a college buddy. He was an instructor in front of me. And so I went with my buddy TJ. And at the end of the evening, I turned to him and I said, you know, you pretty much saved my life a couple times tonight. I'm like, I remember, I remember that day. I remember walking in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, thinking, huh. I mean, I was over the water coming into Eglin, Air Force Base, pitch dark, and I got the ups and the downs wrong, like because the water's so dark, it's like nighttime. So I got my up mixed up with my down, which you'd think, how do you do that? It happens. Happens. You know, and he, he pointed me out. That night, I also almost hit a casino in Biloxi, but that's... <laughs> Yeah, I was like, what is that? The top floor. When you're in an airplane pointing up at a casino, uh, he helped me out. That's not how you want to hit it in the lottery. 
Uh, I know, I know. There were, in my life, there were a couple of nameless air traffic controllers that I think I owe my life to, and I'll never met them. Probably eight years apart, two young ladies, um, where I don't know what would have happened, but peril, some sort of peril. They kind of spoke out and steered me in the right direction, and I'm grateful for them. One in Arizona and one in Texas. Everything, I was trying, everything I was was trying to do the right thing, and I was incapable that's what I want to demonstrate. Over the skies of Iraq, I once uh, was getting ready to shoot a missile, air-to-ground missile, big old thing, uh, like a 200-pound warhead. And um, I, I, the button to lock it, you have a screen and you're guiding it and everything, but the button to lock up what you want is here and the button to shoot is here. I went to lock and I shot it with no lock. So I launched this thousand pound explosive. You know, what do you do? Like, I mean, underneath is the country of Iraq, right? And there's, and uh, I, I know for a fact that I prayed because it was on my, my, my HUD film. The guys all joked about it because it was like this odd times when you witness by accident. Because everybody, you know, my buddies watching the film later said, like, I, I wouldn't have prayed. I'd have said something else. Um, you know, fortunately, thank the Lord, it just hit a piece of dirt in the desert. Uh, but, man, I was trying to do everything right. One of the most important points days of my life was a mission uh, over there where uh, there were some U.S. Marines that were in distress. And... Um, maybe one of the most meaningful moments of my life, but they were in serious need and they were being mortared from a tree line. And I don't like Marines, but I love Marines. Uh, I love having the microphone. Um, but I, they could, I mean, they were getting shelled hard and I found the enemy. I remember that. I, it was a big moment. I found the enemy. I fixed them. It was sunset, sun was setting, so you couldn't, you know, you ever drive around at night and you go, I don't know if I should use my headlights, they don't really help, but I can't really see. One of those moments where you put your night vision goggles on and everything's washed out because it's too bright and you take them off, but then you can't see. Um, so just to see the ground from 15,000 feet, you know, you really had to squint and then you had to squint to, inside the squint to, you know, it was just that sort of night. So I find these guys and I drop my bombs and uh, miss. My, my flight lead hits the target. He comes in behind me and corrects. And I missed the target. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is I tried to do everything right. I was fully devoted. I was a zealous pilot. Since I, my 10 years old, I wanted to fly that airplane. I was single-minded. It was the dream of my life. And I worked and strove and tried and tried. And as hard as I tried, as much effort as I put in, I needed people to save my life on more than one occasion. And I missed the mark. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus does. There's this, Paul, Paul today in scripture, 
is going to be pleading in his heart. You'll be able to hear it in his heart, his grief, his grief that his fellow kinsmen, his fellow Jews are not, they're rejecting the, the, the news of Jesus Christ. They're letting Jesus Christ go because in their minds, in their minds, the path to righteousness is attainable and their zeal to be righteous should be good enough. They don't realize that it is not possible no matter how devoted they are to this idea, they, don't, they are not being honest with themselves that they will ultimately need someone to save their life. And that no matter how hard they try to be righteous, they will miss the mark. They will miss the mark. This is what Paul says. In the ninth chapter, he, he exposes his heart. Speaking of his brothers and, and sisters, his fellow Jews, he says that I have great sorrow, this is the second verse, and unceasing anguish in my heart, Hear this next verse and think of what he's saying. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I I can't say that. Yet, I can't. The 10th chapter, he begins again with his heart. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. The people he loves are satisfied with a system of thinking, a theological system, a a philosophical, whatever you want to call it. Their divine worldview, they're satisfied with a worldview that is unattainable. They think they can go out solo and do this thing. This is what he says, verse 2 of the 10th chapter. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know what he's saying? He's saying they have this zeal to be righteous, but they can't actually really be righteous, and so their zeal, it's based upon a lie. They've established a lower standard that they reach for so that they feel righteous, but before the Lord, it's not really righteousness at all. We can't dumb down God's description of the right world and then, and then attain that and submit it back to the Lord for acceptance. That's what they've done. He's saying they have this zeal to be approved in and of their own effort. They want to strive and be proud of what they've done and submit that before the Lord. But since they can't truly put pure righteousness in front of God, they've established a lower standard and they're submitting that to God for approval. It is not righteous and will not be found righteous before the Lord. Now this is, for Paul, in this very moment, a distinctly Jewish issue, but you and I know this is not really Jewish. This is the alternative to Christianity. I mean, there's, so there's superstition. Right? So for many people, we'd say, if it's not they're not Christ followers. They're either this or they're superstitious. Either they're superstitious, just t-shirt religion. You got to have faith, you know, hope in tomorrow, just, you know, 
Twitter buzzwords, or it's this. This is, by and large, the alternative in our community for righteousness, which is we set an arbitrary standard. We call that righteous enough. It's always a standard we can meet. We establish an attainable standard, and we strive for it. We're not even zealous. I mean, the only real difference between us, the the alternative of us, and this is that they had genuine zeal. They had kind of a monkish attitude about it. Paul's saying, that effort is a vain effort. Because the only way you can feel righteous is if you dumb down the true righteousness of God, in which case it's insubmissible. And if you don't dumb it down, then you can't be it. No matter how zealous you are, you can strive and strive and strive, but you will need someone to save your life and you will miss the mark. In fact, Paul goes on to say, The whole purpose of the law was to point to Jesus Christ. The whole goal of the Old Testament and and the law of Moses was to bring in, put in us a righteous acknowledgement of God, of who God is and a desperate confession of who we're not and then to call on the name of the Lord for grace. So he says, they've missed the mark. They didn't only miss the mark, they missed the point. The fifth verse, 5, 6, 7, and 8, address it a slightly different way. The fifth verse is, um, so he's going to set what he calls their theory of righteousness based upon the law, okay, works, achievement, doing enough good things, right? That's, that's the alternative in our community. How do you know you're going to go to heaven? Because I didn't do some bad things and I did a few good things. And we always know we just barely squeak it out because we keep moving the standard, okay? So there's the righteousness based upon the law, and he's going to contrast that in 6 and 7 to a righteousness based upon faith. Listen to what he says in 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now he's quoting, almost this entire chapter is quoted, by the way. I mean, is excerpts and adaptations of the Old Testament. Because he's speaking to a Jewish community, largely Jewish community. So he's adapting, actually, a passage out of Leviticus when he says that the the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18. He's adapting that. It is, it's encapsulating the heart of legalism is what it's doing. So this is, this statement is, is being said to be ironic. He says, those who who follow the righteousness based upon the law look to passages in the Old Testament, like the person who follows the commandments of God will be saved, and they put hope in it. And he says, that is insane. Because you cannot be righteous. Those statements should make us nervous. He says, however, and he goes to six, he says, the competing, the alternative to righteousness based on laws or righteousness based on faith. Now, I'm going to read six and seven and eight, and our brains will kind of mush and tumble for a little while, okay? These are not fun verses, 
once we, it's like going through a car wash. Once we go through, we'll be happy how clean the car is. But a lot of moving parts here. Okay, I'm with you. I, I just did my homework. So we'll get through and then we'll talk about it together. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? And he quotes Deuteronomy. This is all quoting Deuteronomy 30. The word, or adapting it, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. So what he's saying, you know what I'm saying right now? Kind of hard. This is what he's saying. You have over here a righteousness based upon the law, which strives and strives to do enough right things to be charged as righteous? How does a righteous God who's done nothing but right things get satisfied with you doing enough of them? When is enough to perfect? That's what you have over here. And he says, no, now there's a righteousness based on faith over here. And he says, don't say in your heart this whole, who will ascend? I want want you to imagine like Hercules what he's saying is, is the righteousness on faith is not based upon some kind of Herculean task, like who will climb this mountain to heaven or who will, in, in Deuteronomy 30, it's actually cross the seas. The point in Deuteronomy is the will of God is not some hard to grasp concept. That's some distant idea that you have to strive or do some big feat or be some sort of superhuman person. You don't have to be that way. The the way he adapts it is to pull in Christ. He says, you don't have to ascend into heaven and bring Christ down or go to the abyss and bring Christ up. His point is, Jesus Christ came down on his own. You don't have to go get him. And Jesus Christ was resurrected on his own. You don't have to go do it. The work has been done. The righteousness based on faith here, he's saying, you benefit from the work that was already done. Christ came down and Christ went up and you don't have to go do it. You don't have to do some superhuman thing. You don't have to be good anymore. You don't have to be good. You can receive Christ Jesus and then be good for goodness sake. That's what he's saying here. And he ends with saying... Don't you see? The word is near you. He's, and this, he's, he's practically quoting word for word. In your mouth and in your heart. This righteousness based on the law is always distant, always unattainable, always unsure, or always being dumbed down. The righteousness based on faith has been satisfied and is near you. And then he gives the gospel in about as clean and and pristine a way as it's ever been written. Look at 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's it. How is one saved? We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord because we believe it in our heart. It's not, it's a simple 
It's concise. It's not small and trite. It's not a verbal spell. We're not saying, say the magic words, Jesus is Lord. That's not what we're saying. We're saying out of the outflow of the heart, the conviction of the heart would burst forth out of your mouth and confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's salvation. That in your heart you'd say, that man has closed the distance for my soul. And if I don't have him, I will perish. And he is not only is he worthy of praise because of who he is, but I want to praise him because of what he's done for me. When your heart says that, and it comes, and that turns into a wellspring that affects the animation of your body, right? The words. He's saying when there's belief that gives birth to function out, to who you, who you are and what you do, when that happens, you are saved. That's salvation by faith. That's the righteousness of God that comes by faith. We don't have to climb some distant mountain. We don't have to do some great thing. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to do... All, all of those things are the alternative to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying this is a Baptist gospel. I'm reading the Holy Bible. This is the word of God saying that the message of life comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. All right, now I want, to, I want you to watch what happens. Well, maybe I should pause there. Maybe we can just awaken to this idea. Because we, we can accidentally switch to the alternative sometimes. Are you, setting, are you setting a false standard and racing for it? Is that what you're doing? Because chances are you're not even doing it with zeal. I mean, let's be honest. Where are the holy people these days? We are not a zealous culture. So if you're truly zeal, you'd look so bizarre. You're full of zeal. So if you're pursuing your own measure of righteousness, chances are you're doing it with a lukewarm, limp, disposition which can't be impressive to any sort of God why that alternative to one that's right in front of you a Christ who has done the work for you okay we're going to go along today by the way there's a baptism I want to read 11 through 13 Uh, I'm going to read them because something's happening, okay? There's movement. The, the argument moves in 11 to 13, okay? So he gives, the, he gives the heart of the gospel, right? Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth the lordship of Christ. And then he says this, for the scripture says in 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And again in 12, he says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then again in 13, he says something very similar. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Three times he reiterates a very similar passage that has everyone and all in it. In other words, he's saying, if our hope in Christ is based upon faith and belief, well, that's something that every human has the capacity to do. 
It's no longer some ethnic rite and ritual that you have to become part of a people and then pursue it inside of that people. This is not it. If it's contingent upon our faith and belief, well, that is a human concept. So verse 11 says, therefore, anyone, anyone who has faith will not be put to shame. And everyone, but the whole idea is, is it's therefore universally available. And verse 12 follows it up and says, not only is it universally available, but God makes no distinction. God does not discriminate with his gospel. God desires that all sorts of people would have it. Jew, Gentile is the same thing as Jew, non-Jew. He says, God is making no distinction anymore between the Jew and the rest of the world. And 13 follows it up again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words... The gospel is universally available without discrimination or distinction and is universally effective. Anyone can call on the Lord and everyone who calls on the Lord will always be saved because God does not discriminate. That's what he's saying. So now we're sitting here with these two concepts. Over here we have this truth that the gospel is not far away from any of us. But if we are to simply hear the gospel and know we can respond to Christ by faith and we can have the riches of his glory, right? Right for us. We don't have, there's no set of tests. There's no race that we have to run where we run the race in the faith. We don't run the race to get to it. We, we, don't, we don't have to pass certain kind of metrics to be accepted. We don't have to be nervous about reaching approval. We can have the full approval, the sonship, the adoption of God through faith right here. That's what he's saying. It's so close to us. And then he says, and it's for everyone. Everyone. What's missing? If there is this, if there is this work of Christ done on our behalf that if we have faith in him we can have eternal life and it is for everyone he, look at 14 he, he, he just falls into 14 how then will they call on him whom, whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's this message, there's this truth that if it's believed in and we call on, we're saved. And there's all these people who haven't heard this message. And Paul connects the two. It's kind of rhetorical questions, right? I mean, he's not waiting for us to answer them. The answer is in the question. The idea can hardly be said more plainly, but if, if maybe we'll endeavor to. If you want to reverse it, you could just say it as statements. God sends people to proclaim the word. The proclaimed word is heard by others. In the hearing some believe, and in the believing, some call on the Lord, and that's how it works. We might say that is the only way it works. 
Just awaken to this for a second. In fact, the way the questions are arranged is to imply rather the negative, the negative consequence of the not happening. We might word it this way. If the sent do not go, then the word is not proclaimed. If the word is not proclaimed, then the hope of God is not heard. And if the hope of God is not heard, then it cannot be believed in. If it is not believed in, no one will call on God. So wake into this, okay? I'm not saying anything new. The goal is for it to migrate, right? Migrate to belief. To belief. I'm gonna say it again. If the sent do not go, then the word will not be proclaimed. And if the word is not proclaimed, then how can it be heard? And if the word is not heard, then how can they believe? And if they cannot believe, how can they call? A little bit later, Paul will entertain the notion. Some will say, well, he kind of entertains the question, well, some don't believe. Some hear and don't believe. And he goes, I know. I'm not saying everyone who hears will believe. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that everyone who hears and believes and calls on the name of the Lord. What I am saying, he's going to say, is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So while everyone who hears may not believe, no one who doesn't hear can believe. I want to challenge the hearts of the church not to at this moment, in your pencil, put a little asterisk beside the word of God and say, well... You know, maybe P, maybe he goes to the jungle of this place and does a special magic thing. That cannot be our response to the implication. This passage does not give permission for that kind of creative imagination. Certainly not when it would create paralysis in the church. Like, those imaginations are perfectly fine as we're going. The long line of missionaries who go, though, don't come back with that imagination. They come back with, why don't we go? How shall we awaken to this? I, you know, I certainly don't, it, I don't know. My heart is not that it would be a guilt trip or a heavy-handed concept. You know, in fact, it's good news here. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? It should be good news. Good news, don't you want, don't you want to do this? Don't you want to be the person to plant a seed or, or sow and water or care for, or, oh, if God would bless it, to be the one who reaps the benefit of a confessing Christian. Don't you want to be? Shouldn't we want to be that? I mean, we should covet this work of God. This is where our zeal should be. Inside the security of Jesus Christ, we should have a great zeal to be actively participating in the work of God. To know in a, in a felicitous sort of way that, the, that in God's great mercy that you had beautiful feet that carried a gospel to somebody we'd never heard. Man, we should want that. We should want it, not, not, I'm not saying not just for all the nations, certainly for all the nations, but we should want it for three of our four neighbors. We should want it for people very close. The irony is, as we awaken to this thing, is that God says the gospel is, salvation is so close to humanity. It's so there. It is in, 
It is to be reached. It's to be grasped by everyone. And yet at the same time, it is so far away from some people because they haven't heard. That's what we need to wrestle with. That we have something that God has through the great work of his son made right up on us. And yet it is far away from some because they have not heard. Not just geographically. If they haven't heard it, they're far away. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. While the uttermost parts of the world, let me say it this way, we should note, and it's worthy, it's worthy and right for us to reach the uttermost parts of the world because they are every bit as worthy of receiving the message of salvation as anywhere else. We were the uttermost. But it's still, it's every bit as true across the table. It's every bit as true with our friends. It's every bit as true for you this morning. I mean, this is how I prefer to close. I, I assume, I, it would be wrong for me to assume that everyone here, it would be irresponsible for me to assume that everyone here is faithfully following Christ. Uh, so I would say, what is your alternative this morning? Superstition? Good enough? What is good enough to perfect? And if so, where's your zeal? At least if you had zeal, you'd expose the fallacy of your, of your worldview. Don't you realize Jesus Christ has come for you? He loves you. He's come for you because he's done something that's wonderful, that's song-worthy for you. Lord, may we awake to this. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, the testimony of baptism, who in five ways preached this scripture. Pray for each soul, Lord, who you know, we don't. Lord, speak words of truth to us at our goings and our comings. Surround us with the right sort of folks, the right sort of words, the right sort of friendships. Lord, this week I pray that each one of us would take a step to awaken, whether it's awakening to the faith or in the faith, awakening to the mission of God. But might with some greater level of devotion consider you and, and what you've said. May, may we do that, Lord, and in doing so, may that be marked as righteous. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.